0: Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Calypso Nicolaitis. Calypso Nicolaitis is Professor of International Relations at the University of Oxford. And we're here to talk about your, your new book, your latest book, Calypso, Exodus, Reckoning, Sacrifice, Three Meanings of Brexit. Um, this is not a typical book about Brexit. You very cleverly and very imaginatively and very uh, creatively weave in aspects of Greek mythology to to sort of retell the Brexit story. So take us through the three scenarios, first of all starting with Exodus.
1: Actually Exodus is, uh, is the first story and the dominant story at, from the beginning, which is not from Greece, but came way before, right? This is m- <laughs> people leaving the Pharaoh slash Brussels to go to their promised land of milk and honey. That's not been stamped by the common agricultural policy. <laughs> and in doing that, they say, let the people go. So this is the Exodus story, and an Exodus story that allows the Brits to tell themselves that may, there may be 40 years of wilderness, maybe a bit less long, but it is in the wilderness that the tribes become a people, that the covenant happens, that maybe the UK will be united again. So this is in the, the sense in which maybe we should understand that um, it doesn't matter when you talk about costs and rational stories. At the end, you want the sea to open and you want to, um, to be on the other side. And of course, Europeans watching this end up saying, because there's so much Brexit fatigue, the same thing. It is a British problem. It is a British responsibility. But let the people go. That's the first story. But can I add that um, in that story, Paul, I do put in a bit of Greek myth already, a foretaste. And that foretaste for me is very important. Uh, It is the moment when I ask, actually, if we step back, what Europe are the Brits really leaving? It's not a Europe of slavery, but nor is it paradise lost. And I think at its best, Europe is, or at least should be, a Cretan Europe, not a Christian Europe, not a a hegemonic Europe, where some center controls the rest but be inspired by the princess Europa, kidnapped by Zeus to go up to Crete, because she was not even European. And at Mm -hmm. the end, she settles at the edge of Europe. And maybe the message there is that Europa is defined by its lines, by its periphery, by its semi-insiders, outsiders. That is the soul of Europe. And I say this myself as a Franco-German
0: Greek. person <laughs> <in>
1: Greek and Greek <laughs> but my mother was Franco-German right. and I understand the importance of the core in Europe but I do hope and feel that we rehabilitate the power of the periphery in our vision for Europe's future. So that's the first Exodus story.
0: Well, in the context of the Exodus story, you talk also about this thing called British exceptionalism. We hear a lot about it, especially since the referendum three and a half years ago now. But how exceptional is British exceptionalism? What do you mean by that? And how, how justified are people who, who bang on about British exceptionalism uh, legitimate, correct in doing so?
1: Well, first of all, we're in the 21st century. There's no chosen people (laughs) when we are, right? (laughs) And so, um, and moreover, there is nothing less exceptional than exceptionalism. Every country has its own narrative and story about how exceptional they are, thankfully. But the question we want to ask about Europe is, is it capable of accommodating its many exceptionalism? And indeed, including a certain version of it, which is British. British in all the f- ways in which we know that Britain doesn't have some of our problems on the continent and here I say our as a continental yeah. European but having just become British sometimes I do the opposite but Britain Anna, has not had changing borders and invasions and problems with the rule of law it, it, it's, it's settled over the century as a very deeply democratic law abiding country with its own problems but it doesn't have some of our continental problems and so somehow I feel in Britain that there is a sense that yeah of course we need to be part of this bigger continental construct and we share values in that sense we're not exceptional but we are exceptional in in our obsession with our autonomy and the nurturing of our own system however much divided we are as an island and I would say that There is, of course, a huge debate on this British exceptionalism or not, so how can we summarize it? But the one greatest way in which I buy the exceptionalism is that, hey, Britain out-asterixes the French. (laughs) And is capable of saying, we the little country, because after all, it's not that big, Uh, nor is it that small, but whatever. You know, we can kind of stand up on our own two feet. And it's maybe, many of us may think is deluded in this interdependent world. Absolutely. But nevertheless, it's a mindset. Um, And I think sometimes around the continent and in the world, however much we think there's something crazy going on with Brexit and the mess that is created, we also think, wow, they dared they dared. And maybe only Britain, in its uh, madness and its in, 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 in and its establishment which maybe uh, itself has accepted the decision against its own will, you know, maybe only Britain could do that.
0: Well, you say with the 21st century and the Brits are of the chosen people, but do you think even if the UK were to stay in, inside the European Union, there would always be a difficult, reluctant um, even an obstructive member, because they don't—they never have come to terms with the idea of of the EU itself, but also of the UK membership of the EU.
1: Well, Paul, you would agree with me that first of all, when we say they, <laughs> we need to deconstruct this they, right. right? Because there are so many in Britain. After all, only thirty-seven percent of Brits voted for Brexit, and that's the public. I mean, but overall. Uh, there are as many variants of relationship with the EU that there are people or group of people in Britain like anywhere else. That's the first point. But moreover, you, in a way, what you say is the story, the third story in my book, the story of sacrifice, that let's sacrifice British membership with its pluses and minuses from a continental viewpoint um, to the altar of, of the EU, of its unity, because somehow... We gain our unity by making Brexit happen or helping it happen. Uh, And indeed, exactly as you said, you know, Britain was a headache. So we're getting rid of this headache, and a lot we've heard a lot that line, including from, you know, my own other country, France. Um, and it's a plausible line in certain ways, although we all know that Britain was a country that was in almost out, now it's trying to be out almost in, at mm-hmm. least in many quarters. And in, in this was a very wise way of dealing with this British, the extent to which there is British exceptionalism, um, because the EU was flexible. About And so I think that meant that we wouldn't have a British veto on monetary union or Schengen. Right. And that was a good thing. It's a sad that we are not able today to
0: be as creatively flexible. But I'm sure, I'm sure that this will happen. Well, before we go on to the sacrifice bit, let me try and lead you more logically then to the second scenario, the, the reckoning part. I'm not quite sure whether you're saying then, based on what you just said, by the way, whether the EU is guilty, quote-unquote, of of not being flexible enough, or has it shown extraordinary uh, patience uh, and great flexibility in trying to accommodate the so-called special needs of the UK position?
1: Well, first of all, Paul, you know, when you ask me these questions, I'm like the rabbi who said, <laughs> Avi was right, and then, yeah, Shlomo is right, and then his wife <laughs> said, but well, they can't both be right, and he says, you're right. And, Everybody you know, right. okay. um, the book is about ambivalence. It's about the okay. ambivalence that we all okay. have. And that politi- and that's a good thing. Ambivalence. That's Ambivalence is a good thing. Right. In fact, it's, a, it's a, in praise of ambivalence. Unfortunately, politics, in a kind of Machiavellian way, but, because Machiavelli saw that politics polarizes. That's what politics does. But if you go back, if we can tap back into our own identity as individuals and citizens, we're all ambivalent between how much control, how much cooperation, all of this. And so I'm hoping that we can see that those two, you you kind of contrasted two stories. Mm. They can both be right. And the way in which reckoning is still right, even if you accept that the EU has done a lot of Positive and flexible things vis-a-vis the UK, is that is if you see Brexit as a canary in the mind yeah. and if you see that it's a, a reflection of the structural ills of the EU. The tsunami of crisis didn't come from only Wall Street or Palmyra. Mm. They also came from within because there are structural weaknesses in the whole EU construct, in a construct that actually widens social divides or inter-country divides very often, although it claims to want to do the opposite, a construct that helps let, helps the fact that people around Europe feel excluded from the decisions that will affect them directly. And you may say, well, actually, no, the EU is super democratic. There's a, even a democratic surplus. Well, sorry, that's not how its citizens feel. And this story that we are involved with with reckoning is as much about uh, a claim for popular sovereignty even if it's shared across country than a kind of in- exclusivist reclaiming of national sovereignty and I think the EU needs to reckon with this message from its people both on the economic side of what kind of precarious capitalism we've built over the last decades and on the democratic political side
0: But, but I would challenge you a bit then in that, uh, Calypso in that I would argue that, to a certain extent, to a large extent, Europe's leaders, uh, certainly the most, the, the most powerful ones, are very mindful of the fact that they are seen as undemocratic, uh, elitist and not sufficiently in contact, connected with uh, the the public at large the the question is how they go about changing things, isn't that the issue that they are they don't need to be told that this is an issue the the problem is how you change things
1: well first of all um, I agree with you indeed and I also find that right now in Brussels there is a wind of change and I think really? what makes you say that? well the new commission, the first woman uh, what she says uh, trying to think outside the box. Right. Um, I also would add that um, uh, it's not necessarily about talking better to the people, although that would be nice, you know, if, if there was much more conversations all around Europe from people com- being the ambassadors of the EU. All of these we've been talking about for decades. I've taught on the EU for 30 years, and this is very, very old themes. We know that. But more fundamentally, I think leaders know that the EU can never be a simple democracy like throwing the rascals out because they're all sitting around this table, say the European Council, and they know one day one will leave, another day will, another one will arrive, and that's how the EU works, and it's a very complex system and I can't see how it could be radically different from what it is. I'm not calling for a revolution here institutionally. There is no institutional magic bullet to bring democracy in Europe. We have a parliament, a council, a commission, no. What needs to change, I think, is the ethos of how we how we engage with this complexity with citizens. And one way I hope we can engage is what I advocate at the end of the reckoning part. Reckoning is about rethinking the way in which, what the EU is for. And I am hoping that what we're seeing today, and what I've advocated for 10 years, is a pivot from the politics of space to the politics of time.
0: You'll have to explain that, please.
1: Well, I explained that (laughs) very simply in in the fact that the EU has been all about creating a single market, a single space for the movement of people, and that's a very, very good thing. Although we know it's been the best of things, but sometimes the worst of things Mm. for certain parts of Europe's population. And it has pitted the nomads, those who move, the 4% against the settlers in Europe who feel that there might, some of them, not all, be on the receiving end. And this is as old as human history, nomads versus settlers. We could go on and on about how the politics of space is maybe necessary, but creates these deep divides. And I think where we can come back together as Europeans is to actually do things at the European level that only the EU can do for the long term, that the EU can be the guardian of the long term, including through impact assessments of every one of its laws and regulations and decisions. What will this mean for two years, five years, ten years, 50 years, 100 years?
0: That's what you mean by the politics of time. That's
1: what I mean by the politics of time. It's very concrete. It's like we have impact assessments for environment specifically. Environment is a big part of it. Green New Deal is a big part of it, but it's not the only part. Sustainable integration over time needs to be about everything the EU does. And you will say, this, is, this can be difficult democratically because there are short-term costs if you aim for the long-term. But I think if we do that, the EU can be a different kind of democracy, what I call a democracy with foresight, um, and really um, engage and, and create a debate In the European public sphere, about how we share the cost of being responsible for our children. It's not going to be easy, because that cost needs to be shared among all its citizens. But I hope that's the place where Europe is going to go.
0: Well, Let's move on into this final part of the conversation, uh, Calypso, to the, the sacrifice part of, of your book. I'm not sure whether even Brexiters now my Remainers think that the UK is making a great sacrifice in leaving the European uh, Union if it does leave the European Union, which I always say on these occasions. Is it because you think that if the UK were to leave uh, a, a major source of obstruction and delay and, and just not being cooperative would be removed by the dint of UK's departure or do you mean is it's more like a, a wake-up call that to the rest of the, U, the U27 that they must change the way they do business?
1: I, uh, as usual, <laughs> you will be very very yes. uh, or maybe uh, that's frustrated with it. me Paul, <laughs> uh, that it, that the, the first version is Remember that in the book, I try to tell stories, not just necessarily what I think. I think bits and pieces of all of this because I'm myself schizophrenic. Like I hope many of those who listen to us, um, that's a good thing. Ambivalence is a good thing. Yeah. And I do hear a lot that the sacrifice, yeah, because wow, you know, we won't have this headache anymore of Britain vetoing everything and coming in with its objections. True, uh, you hear it. And elements of it might be true, especially lately. You know, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I personally campaign for remain on the theme that Britain please stay for Europe's sake, because at the end of the day, I have always thought that Britain's contribution to the EU is, is extremely positive, including its pragmatism, its devotion to the rule of law, its pluralism. And so I don't really believe the kind of heroic sacrifice story that Britain mm-hmm. has to leave on the altar of Europe's principle and unity. But I do think we have to have a more ironic view of the sacrifice that is being made. That, yeah, I mean, it will hurt Britain. And maybe it can serve Europe and, in the end, you know, serve some sort of notion of what is right if the British sacrifice can help the EU, this is more what you were saying uh, in the second side, mm-hmm. you know, rethink this wake-up call, rethink of how it manages its polycentric governance so that other countries are not tempted, this is what I call exit interrupters, and also mm-hmm. how it manages its relationship with very close third countries, which is what the UK will be, the, th- the closest ever, ever Third country in the history of the EU, because wow, it's going to be a former EU member state. Mm-hmm. That's a very different kind of thing. Um, and can we take advantage of this in the EU to show how the way we deal with the UK, especially on trade, but also strategically, um, is a testimony to Europe's um, uh, commitment to multilateralism and
0: cooperation? Well, there's a final question then, maybe, Calypso, and maybe to put you slightly on the spot. And no, no, on the one hand, on the other hand, type of answers, maybe. Um, you talk a lot about, we need a, or can, at least a, you pose the question, can we have a smarter, kinder, do-no-harm Brexit? What, what do you mean concretely by that?
1: I would mean that, although my second best would be that Britain never leaves the EU, that I think that would have cost uh, for Britain in terms of um, polarization and huge divisions that would continue in that country. I therefore mean that perhaps what we want to aim for is the kind of exit, the kind of withdrawal that preserves the future, that makes it more plausible, indeed, as you said, Paul, to at the end of the day, um, through a kind of Brexit, um, prepare the ground for a changed UK re-entering a changed EU. How you do this? Um, involves, I think, all parties to have a mindset where they're sitting on the same side of the table against a wicked problem, and they're trying to solve it together in a constructive way, rather than the kind of macho politics, my resolve is greater than yours, that we're witnessing today. And that, and that that will be my last word, but actually um, very important because we are sitting here today at the beginning of October when we have the huge mayhem outside on the backstop, which of course has been the, wicked, the mother of all wicked problems where uh, the EU is a machine that creates external borders, for better or worse, that's what it does, and yet it has to do this on an island that cannot afford to have any border within it. What kind of wicked problem is that? And yes, the EU is right, to say that well, the only way to deal with it is to keep either Northern Ireland or the whole of the UK in the single market and the customs union. <laughs> but it faces a UK stubborn as it is, saying well, at least we need the Northern Ireland to stay in the customs union. And what you want to do is kind of yes, convince them that mm, no, we need we need to create uh, an all island entity for everything. But maybe also engage in the kind of constructive compromise that the EU is so good at. And I actually know and trust that the Commission team around Michel Barnier is indeed trying to do this. So we need to move beyond the noise and fury and engage in an ethos of mutual recognition, of engaging with the other side, however mad they may seem, because each side doesn't just represent themselves as person or party or whatever it is, but they represent the welfare of all the people of Europe. And we owe, as technocrats, as thinkers and as negotiators, we owe the people of Europe to always go the extra mile and give a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance to agreement, as Merkel said very recently. That is the spirit of the EU, and I hope that spirit of the EU will pervade, if not in the coming days or weeks, but hopefully in the coming months and years, will pervade the reconstruction of the
0: relationship between the UK and the EU. That is my hope, poll. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Exodus, Reckoning, Sacrifice, Three Meanings of Brexit. is a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. Calypso Nicolaitis, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you.